It was 1953 when J.R. Tolkien first conceived the concept for his now famous work, The Lord of the Rings. Within two years' time, Tolkien's three-volume series was completed and published under three titles, that being The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. Now, regardless of whether you're a fan of these incredible books or you're the person who fell asleep watching the movies, you might be interested to know that Tolkien didn't care for the title that his publisher picked for the third volume of this series. He didn't really care for the title, The Return of the King, and the reason why is because The Return of the King actually reveals too much about the story as far as he was concerned. Without debate, he was correct. The title tells us exactly how the story ends. The King Returns. And listen, even if this is the first time that you've heard about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you already know that the king is going to return <laughs> because it's right there in the title. Tolkien was concerned that this title revealed too much about the end of the story, and yet it was this title that has inspired many excited readers to read The Return of the King, and the reason why is because they want to discover how the fellowship of the ring would defeat the evil plan of Sauron and so that Aragorn could be crowned the king of Gondor. And you might be thinking, calm down, nerd. <laughs> but it is actually a very incredible story. And, and I'm sure we all realize that, you know, the Lord of the Rings is just a work of fiction. And, and yet we must not fail to recognize the parallels between the return of Aragorn and the return of our king, Jesus Christ. Much like the third volume of Tolkien's work of fiction, the Bible also announces in advance the return of the king. If you're wondering how it all ends, our king returns. And listen, the Bible is filled with prophecies about the second coming of Christ Jesus. And while there are many in the world today who don't really care to know all the details about the return of the king, Listen, I would argue that the born-again believer should be super excited as we look forward to the day when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom here on earth. Here in our text today, we're going to consider the way in which the return of our king ought to excite the hearts of those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see that those who look forward to the return of the king, well, these are hopeful believers. Those who look forward to the return of the king are also joyful believers. And finally, those who look forward to the return of the king are faithful believers. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's here in 1 Thessalonians 2 where we find Paul. He's helping his audience to refocus the attention of the original recipients of this epistle. He's refocusing their attention on the second coming of Christ. And as we make our way to the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I should take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul was encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to patiently persevere the persecution that they were experiencing there in the region of Macedonia. He even reminded them about the way that Satan had hindered him from returning and coming back to encourage them. And it's for this reason that he actually wrote this epistle 
in order to send it to them so that he could redirect their attention by shifting their focus from their suffering to the second coming of Christ. With this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 19. Here Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's comforting the hearts of the Christians there in Thessalonica. And he did this by refocusing their attention on the day when Christ Jesus would finally come and establish his millennial kingdom. And with this as his goal here, it's important for us to remember that the original recipients of this epistle were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it was back in chapter 1 where we learned about the way that they received the word of God in much affliction. That's what Paul said. They received the word of God in much affliction. And it was here in the middle of this chapter where we learned about the way that these believers were suffering persecution at the hands of their own countrymen. And in light of these things, I have no doubt that those disciples were dealing with great discouragement. Imagine being persecuted and punished for your faith by your own countrymen, by your own kinsmen. The Christians there in Thessalonica were being persecuted for, and for no other reason than because they had become believers who were walking by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, if you've ever been punished for doing the right thing, you know how discouraging that can be. I'm sure we've all had a small taste of the discouragement that those believers were wrestling with. And knowing that discouragement is able to derail the faith of many disciples, Paul wanted to refocus their faith in the the hopes that, that they might set their sights on Jesus Christ rather than on their suffering. He he wanted to refocus their faith in the hope that fills our hearts as we look forward to the return of our king. Let's take a closer look at the way that Paul put it here in verse 19. Again, he asks, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Now, this word hope, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who have an optimistic expectation. In a Christian context, the born-again believer who is resting in the assurance of our salvation will also enjoy the confident expectation of hope as we look forward to that day when we will finally stand in the presence of our Savior there in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And with this as the focus, Paul was helping his audience to refocus their faith on the future. Let's consider again how Paul puts it here in verse 19. Here again he asks, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Rather than allowing these saints to stew in their own struggles, Paul helped them to deal with their discouragement and he did this by directing their attention to the day when they would all dwell together in the kingdom of Christ Jesus. 
And in this way, Paul was helping them to have the hope that fills the hearts of those who will set their sights on the millennial reign of our Messiah. Now, in order to better grasp this great hope that we can all have, I want to consider the way that John described the new Jerusalem, uh, which will be here during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, I should take a moment to remind you that it's in Revelation chapter 20. There the apostle John describes the way in which the Lord Jesus will eventually establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. And it's in Revelation chapter 21 where John informs us about the new Jerusalem, which will become the capital city of the millennial kingdom. According to John, the king of kings will dwell with us as he dwells there in the new Jerusalem. And not only that, but we also learn that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And knowing that he's going to make all things new, well, we can rejoice in knowing that in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. I don't know how often you've cried here in this world. I don't know how often you've experienced pain and suffering. But I'm guessing that we've all had a small taste of this. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the new Jerusalem where these things will no longer exist. And without debate, those who focus on the millennial kingdom of Christ Well, these are the Christians who become hopeful believers. At the same time, this might lead us to wonder why Paul was directing their attention to the second coming of Christ rather than reminding his readers about the rapture of the church. And while some might be led to think that Paul probably believed in the post-tribulation rapture of the church, I'd like to present you with another reason for why Paul was leading them to look forward to the second coming rather than the, the, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And with this as the focus, I should remind you of the conversation that the disciples had with Jesus on the day of his ascension. It's actually in Acts chapter 1. The apostles are gathered together with our risen Lord, and that's when the apostles asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't ask, is this the time of the rapture? No, they wanted to know, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, the apostles of Christ were wondering if this was the moment in time when Christ Jesus would claim the crown of King David. And the reason for this question was based on the blessed hope that the Jews had been waiting for. You see, the children of Israel were were actually longing for the day. They were longing for the day when the Messiah would come and rule and reign over the entire earth. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that Paul was a man who was looking forward to the millennial kingdom of Christ Jesus. Now, this is not to suggest that we shouldn't find hope in the rapture of the church. As a matter of fact, it's in the fourth chapter of this epistle where we're going to find Paul helping his audience to understand that the second coming of Christ Jesus actually begins with the rapture of the church. And when we factor in the details that we're going to find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what we're going to discover is that the Lord will first rapture his church just before the rise of the Antichrist. And then as church age believers enter into the presence of the Lord, that's when the seven years of tribulation is happening here on the earth. Meanwhile, we're going to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ as we stand before the Bema seat of Jesus. And it's there where Christians, church age believers, will give an account of our earthly works. I'm going to talk more about this when we get to our third point. 
But as we consider this idea of standing before the Bema seat uh, judgment of Jesus, I don't know about you, but I kind of have <laughs> mixed feelings about this. You see, it's there before the Bema seat of Jesus where our lives will be on display. Exciting? You excited for that? We're going to stand before the beam of seat judgment of Jesus Christ and our works will be tried by fire. Now remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. And yet I'm certain that we're all just a little concerned about the way that the Lord Jesus is going to judge our works as everybody's looking on. That being the case, Paul probably thought that there's a greater measure of hope for those who look forward to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, you know, after the Bema Seat judgment is done. <laughs> let's, let's kind of get past the, the Bema Seat judgment and just get right on into the millennial kingdom. To further make my case, we, we should consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the Christians at the church in Rome. And with this as the focus, keep your uh, place there in 1 Thessalonians. And let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And as you make your way to the 8th chapter of Romans, I want to take a moment to remind you that the second coming of Christ is going to take place at the end of the Great Tribulation. In other words, this is the moment when he actually returns to the earth. It's at that point in time when the armies of the world will be gathered against Israel there in the valley of Megiddo. And according to the scriptures, there's going to be a great battle as the Lord Jesus destroys the enemies of Israel. They're going to see him coming on the clouds with great glory. They're going to turn their weapons towards the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and the church as well because we're following him at that point in time. Well, it's a no-brainer to, to believe that the battle is won as our Messiah returns to the earth, and it's at that point in time when another judgment will happen. The, the beam of seat judgment is done. We've returned to the Lord. We, we, we've returned to the earth with the Lord, and here on the earth, that's when the Messiah will begin to separate his sheep from the goats as the sheep enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ. Now, in order to understand how incredible the world is going to be at that point in time as the, the goats are sent to wait for the great white throne judgment, which will happen after the millennial kingdom, and, and as the Lord then rules and reigns over the earth from the new Jerusalem, uh, the, the Bible actually presents us with several prophecies that help us to understand how incredible uh, the earth is going to be at this point in time. You see, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the Lord is going to create new heavens and a new earth, and not only that, but he also assures us that the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard there in the new Jerusalem. Isaiah also informs us that the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Incredible. Isaiah tells us that the nursing child shall, shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Are, are you afraid of snakes? They're more afraid of you than, than you are of them. Don't worry. But in the, in the new Jerusalem and there in the millennial kingdom, you're not going to have to worry about your child, you know, getting bit by a snake. The prophet Daniel informs us that the Lord is going to finish transgression as he makes an end of sins. And it's at this point in time when he brings in everlasting righteousness. 
What an incredible time. I like the way that Paul sums it all up here in Romans chapter 8. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 19. Here Paul declares, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is not seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Christian, listen, the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be this time when the curse that occurred there in the garden is finally reversed. It's at that point in time when the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And as we consider how incredible it's going to be to dwell together with our Savior, well, I believe the heart of every believer should be filled with this heavenly hope today. And, and this is the hope we will have as we look forward to the return of our King. And as this hope fills our hearts, we'll receive the strength we need to persevere every earthly difficulty that we experience as we wait for Jesus Christ. Now, this brings us to our second point, because, because listen here, uh, those who look forward to the return of the king are not only hopeful believers, but those who look forward to the return of the king are also joyful believers. And with this as the focus, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, it's here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Here we find Paul, he's referring to the joy that fills the hearts of those who are looking forward to the return of our king. If you would look with me there, beginning of verse 19 again, here again, Paul asks, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming for you are our glory and joy? Here in these verses, we find Paul encouraging the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica. And he did this by describing the way that his heart was filled with joy as he considered the second coming of Christ Jesus. And just to be clear, that word joy was translated from a Greek word which was used of those who were exceedingly cheerful and delightfully glad. And listen, if anyone had a reason to be bummed out, if anybody had reason to be discouraged, it was Paul. The reason why is because he had suffered the loss of all things. Everything that he had worked for in his life, he gave it all up. He suffered the loss of everything in order to serve our Savior, Jesus. Remember, when Paul placed his faith in Jesus Christ, he was one of the most renowned up-and-coming Pharisees in all of Israel. And yet he walked away from this prestigious position. He gave up his position as a famous Pharisee so that he could become a, a servant of this obscure group that was being called a cult there in the first century. At that point in time, he also painted a target on his back because remember, he had been persecuting Christians. And now he was a Christian. 
And you better believe he was being persecuted. He painted a huge target on his back as he spent his time ministering to the Gentiles. And it's for this reason that he suffered stripes above measure. He was imprisoned more frequently. He received five beatings from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. And once uh, he ended up being stoned right there at the city gates as he was dragged out and left for dead. And while his journeys caused him to suffer weariness and toil, sleeplessness and hunger, Paul was filled with joy. He was filled with joy as he considered the way that every convert would join him there in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Let's consider how Paul puts it again here in verse 19. Here again he asks, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. In other words, Paul was informing these believers that his heart was filled with overflowing joy as he focused on the way that they would be together with him there in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And what this means is that Paul was not only happy about their conversion to Christ, but he was exceedingly cheerful as he considered the way that their conversion to Christ was also the guarantee that they also would dwell together in the millennial kingdom of our king. As we consider Paul's example, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a joyful believer? Am I a joyful believer? And with this question in mind, I want to consider something that the Apostle Peter wrote in his first epistle. If you would hold your place here in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you make your way to the first chapter of Peter's first epistle, I just want to take some time to consider the way that joy seems to be missing in the lives of so many Christians. Just to be clear, I'm not talking about circumstantial happiness. Please understand that the word happy, it actually finds its root in the old English word hap. And the word hap actually speaks of luck or chance. The same root word is the basis for our word happenstance, which speaks of you know, some sort of luck or coincidence. And with that, you know, the emotional high of happiness is really just based on our circumstances. When everything is working out for bungee, I'm happy. And when things aren't working out for Bungie, I'm not so happy. It's just based on circumstances. And while it would be nice, I'm sure you agree that, you know, it would be nice to be happy all the time because all the circumstances work out in our favor. I'm sure we realize by now that never going to happen. Never going to happen. And we have to recognize that our happiness can quickly give away to, can give way to sadness in just a few moments just because a few different things happened that day. We woke up happy. What happened? Something didn't work out in the way that I wanted it to. And so now my happiness is sadness. It's all circumstantial. In contrast to this, the joy of the Christian can be as solid and as stable as our Savior Jesus. The reason why is because the joy of the believer isn't based on our ever-changing circumstances. This is why Paul could be, you know, this guy who's being beaten and thrown into prison and and all these things are happening to him and he's suffering so many things, uh, you know, as he looks like a loser and yet he's filled with joy. 
The joy of the believer isn't based on our ever-changing circumstances. No, instead, our joy is an exuberance which is based upon the everlasting promises of our Savior Jesus. And not only that, but our joy is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever owned a fruit tree. If you have, then you'll recognize that you never heard it grunt nor strain in order to produce the fruit. It just produces the fruit because that's what a fruit tree does. And when we consider the, the, the fruit of joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, listen, this isn't something that we have to manufacture. It's just something that is true of our lives because we are fruity Christians. Okay, maybe not. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and therefore joy is produced supernaturally in the lives of those who walk by faith with Jesus. Therefore, listen, if you're a joyless Christian, then I encourage you to refocus your faith on the return of the King. I like the way that the Apostle Peter puts it here in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 6. Here Peter declares, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with what? with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here in these verses, we find the apostle Peter. He's helping his audience to understand that the Christian who has even been grieved by various trials while we're here in this world can still rejoice with inexpressible joy. On the worst day of your life here on this planet, you can still be filled with joy which is inexpressible, joy that you can't even explain. The believer whose faith is being tested by the fiery trials of a a painful persecution can still have a heart that is full of joy. And in order to understand the source of this unwavering joy, we should notice how Peter encouraged us to focus our faith on the finish line as we look forward to the return of our king. With this as the goal, I want to encourage you to remember an acrostic which will help us to always have joy. This acrostic is based on the word joy, and it's simply this. The J in joy stands for Jesus. And those who will focus on Jesus first will always have joy. The O in joy stands for others, and those who learn to love others with the love of the Lord will also always have joy. The why in joy stands for you. And it's important to understand that this is at the end, the last. Yeah, those who focus on themselves all the time tend to be the most unhappiest people in the world. But if you put you last, like as in the word joy here, then there's joy. Jesus, others, then you, results in joy. 
with this as the goal, we'd all do well to follow in the example that Paul sets here in our text today. And with this as the focus, let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to take another look here at verse 19, because here again Paul asks, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Here we find Paul helping his audience to understand that the return of the king was the basis for his unwavering joy. He's looking for that coming of Christ when all believers will stand in the presence of our Savior there in the millennial kingdom. And as he looked forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, Paul was also filled with joy as he considered the way that he would eventually stand before our Savior with all of the people that he led to the Lord. Incredible to imagine Think about that, you know, standing before the Lord Jesus with all of the people that you led to the Lord. Maybe you're like, "Uh uh-oh. I haven't led anybody to the Lord. Well, are you struggling with joy also? If so, then recognize the connection here. When we keep Jesus first, who do we talk about the most? Jesus, and if we love others, uh, you know, with the love of the Lord, then, then we're going to talk about Jesus to others. And as we talk about Jesus to others, guess what happens? They start coming to Christ. And we find joy in the, in the thought of standing in the presence with our Savior, with all the people we had the privilege to lead to Jesus. And so I encourage every Christian to follow in the footsteps of Paul so that we can become those believers who are filled with joy as we look forward to the return of our king. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, those who look forward to the return of the king are not only hopeful believers and joyful believers, but those who look forward to the return of the king are also faithful believers. And with this as our focus, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 here. It's here uh, in our text today where, where we find Paul referring to the glory which will eventually be experienced as we enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ. And with that, I want to look once again here at verse 19. Here again, Paul asks for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that their commitment to Christ had not only filled his heart with hope and joy, but their commitment to Christ was also cause for celebration and for many reasons. You see one reason why? It's because their conversion to Christ would result in their everlasting salvation. And we should rejoice with the angels every time a sinner turns to Jesus Christ and trusts in him. Not only that, but their conversion to Christ would also result in an everlasting inheritance. And this is an inheritance that is given to everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. But finally, their conversion to Christ would result in heavenly rewards for Paul and for Paul's traveling companions. And to prove my point, look with me again at verse 19. Here again, Paul asks, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Now, that word crown was translated from the Greek word stephanos. And just to be clear here, The word Stephanos was used in reference to the wreath or or that garland which was given as a prize to the athletes who were victorious in their games. In the context of the Christian faith, the same Greek word was used of the servants who receive rewards for the way that we spent our time serving the Lord. 
You might not know this, but we actually find five different crowns mentioned in the Bible. This includes the imperishable crown, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, This imperishable crown will be given to the believers who are willing to sacrifice the perishable crowns of this world for the everlasting rewards that we'll receive in the presence of our Savior. Now, Now, there are many Christians who are satisfied with the perishable crowns of earthly endeavors. And, and I'm not saying there's, there's something wrong with, with going after earthly crowns, you know. If, if that's something that, uh, that you enjoy, you know, that's certainly something that uh, is uh, to some degree worthy of our time, you know. Uh, but to what degree? It's a perishable crown. You know, you can line your walls with, with, with all of your degrees and you can line your shelves with trophies and all these sorts of things. And, you know, Paul says, you know, physical exercise profits a little. But just remember that it's a finite crown. It's a perishable crown. I believe that pursuing the imperishable crowns is far better. Why? Because it's a crown that we'll enjoy forever. To me, that that's... That's a greater return on the investment. So, you know, there's the imperishable crown, which is received by those who say, I'm not going to spend so much time on the perishable crowns. I'm going to set out to serve the Lord so I can receive imperishable crowns. uh, And this is one of those rewards. The second crown, which is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's called the crown of righteousness. And according to Paul, the crown of righteousness is given to the believers who spent their time fighting the good fight of faith until they finished the race. And while there are many believers who end up backsliding as they fall away from the faith, the crown of righteousness is received by those who finish the race well. And that's my encouragement to all of us here this morning, that we finish the race well and receive this crown of righteousness. The third crown is mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5, and and, and there Peter calls this the crown of glory. And according to the Apostle Peter, this, this crown is for the pastors who faithfully shepherd their flock, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And at the same time, the same crown is also received by the believers who learn to humbly submit to our Savior as we learn how to submit to one another here within our fellowship of faith. The fourth crown, which John mentions in Revelation chapter 2, is the crown of life. And according to John, this crown of life is given to those who are faithful as they endure intense persecution. The description of this crown also seems to indicate that the persecuted person is then put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And while there's no doubt that every Christian martyr has suffered death for our Savior, we can rejoice in knowing that every Christian martyr will receive this crown of life. Finally, it's here in our text tonight where we find Paul referring to the crown of rejoicing. And just to be clear, this word rejoicing, it's translated from a a Greek word which was used of those who are boasting in the Lord. The same word can also speak of those who are bragging in their own efforts, and and that's not the kind of boasting that we're talking about. This is a rejoicing uh, that is seen in the lives of those who boast in the Lord as they glorify God for all the things that he's accomplished through us. And in the, in, the, in the context of this passage, we see here how the crown of rejoicing is going to be given to those who stand in the presence of our king with those that we led into the kingdom of the Lord. Now we're going to have a crown of rejoicing if we've led others 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider all the crowns that Christians might receive, well, it's important for us to understand that it's the faithful believers who will receive these rewards at the beam of seat of Jesus Christ. To explain what I mean by this, I want to consider the way that Paul described the beam of seat judgment of Jesus. And so if you will, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that it's my belief that this judgment of believers, it's going to occur directly after the rapture of the church, but before the second coming of Christ. And so while the the tribulation here, the seven-year tribulation is happening here on the earth, I believe it's in that same window of time when the beam of seat judgment of Jesus is taking place. With all this in mind, if you would look with me here at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to begin reading there at verse 8. Here Paul declares, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here in these verses, we find Paul referring to the judgment seat of Jesus. And just to be clear, he's not referring to the great white throne judgment where unbelievers will eventually be condemned. The great white throne judgment will happen after the millennial kingdom of Christ. And so we have the Bema seat judgment happening right after the rapture of the church. Then at the time of the second coming, there's the separation of the sheep from the goats. That happens at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And then after the, at the end of the millennial kingdom, you have the great white throne judgment. Refocusing our attention on the Bema seat of Jesus, where born-again believers will be judged according to our works, It's here where, at the Bema seat, we'll receive rewards for the way that we served our our Savior while we're here in the church age. At the same time, this is also the judgment seat where we will lose rewards for the things that we did in the flesh. This was precisely the point that Paul presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he declares this. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me... As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. From this, we can see how the Bema Seat judgment will not only result in eternal rewards for faithful believers, but will also suffer the loss of rewards as the works of our flesh are all destroyed by the holy fire of the Lord. And with that being the case, it's my guess that this, this time period, which is between the rapture of the church and the second coming, it's going to involve the inspection of all of our works as every believer is called to give an account of our lives. And it's for this reason that Paul encouraged us to take heed how we spend our time here on earth. 
Now, as we consider the way that the works of every believer will eventually be tried by fire before we enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ, we should take a moment to examine our own lives today by asking, am I a faithful believer? Will I receive the crown of rejoicing as I stand before our Savior with all the people I led to the Lord? Or or will I watch the majority of my works being burned up by the holy fire of God? Will we enter the millennial kingdom of Christ wearing the crowns of the faithful servants? Or will we miss out on many of the rewards that the Lord wanted to give us by giving us opportunities to serve him here on the earth, and yet, instead of serving him, we did our own thing? With these questions in mind, I want to encourage every Christian to realize that those who want to become faithful believers, you know, the Christians who will receive the rewards of the Lord, We need to maintain an eternal perspective. And listen, the best way for us to maintain an eternal perspective is by keeping our eyes on the prophetic horizon as we look forward to the Bema Seat judgment, which will take place just before the return of our king. And in order to maintain this eternal focus, uh, you know, that will help us to become faithful believers, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presents to the Christians at the church in Corinth. You see, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul declares, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's actually the slogan of our nursery. We're taking sign-ups right now if you're looking for a place to earn some crowns. Paul says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Christian, listen, there's coming a day when we will stand before our Savior, having received glorified bodies which will never die. Now, I don't know about you, you know, like, I'm not opposed to exercise. I ride my mountain bike often. And yet, none of us are going to get perfected here. I don't care if you download V-Shred and do everything that he says to do. Never going to be perfect here. How much time are you going to invest in that? How much money are you going to spend on that next surgery? Listen, we're going to receive incorruptible bodies on the day of our resurrection. So, you know, pass the biscuits. Let's, <laughs> let's get back to serving our Savior. <laughs> oh, I'm just, just, <laughs> just a little myocarditis, don't worry. 
<laughs> just. <laughs> Someone turn the AC down. Listen, the things we do here in this world is going to affect the rewards we receive before the beam of seat of Jesus. You know, and, and I get it. Like, I, I love the grace of God. I love knowing that all my sins are covered. I love knowing that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that we enter into, into the, uh, you know, the presence of our Savior, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything Jesus did for us. And yet, don't be confused. Your rewards are based on the way you serve Jesus here in this world. And the things we do in this world will affect the rewards we receive before the beam of seat of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we would do well to keep this in focus each and every day. We'll do well to keep our eyes on the finish line of faith as we look forward to the return of our King. Because this will help us to to place every decision into perspective. Rather than living a, a life for the finite crowns of earthly rewards... Paul encouraged us to become those faithful believers who are steadfast, immovable, and sometimes abounding in the work of the Lord. Oh, wait, no, that's not what it said. Steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Everything you do for the Lord is not in vain because there's reward. For serving the Lord. And as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take this time to remind you that our king is going to return. You could actually just change the name, the name of the Bible to the return of the king, right? Because that's what it's all pointing us towards. The return of our king. And now that we know how his story will end, Every believer ought to be excited and encouraged as we look forward to the millennial kingdom of Christ Jesus. And with this excitement and focus, we can rejoice in knowing that those who look forward to the return of the king will become hopeful believers today. Those who look forward to the return of the king will be joyful believers today. And those who look forward to the return of the king will become faithful believers are serving our Savior today. And to sum it all up, the Christian who is looking forward to the return of our King will become those believers who are steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, all for the glory of our King. Let's pray.